You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to your favorite music podcast on the internet, as if podcasts are available anywhere but the internet. This is Two Tape Decks. And a mixing board. I'm Jay Mack, live in my bunker in St. Louis. And this is Sam Wade out in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville. Yeah, you're you're in cowboy country. You know it. You see any cowboys? I see them every once in a while on the street. I see cowboys and farmers and uh, all kinds of people out here. You know, this is you know Nashville's a pretty uh, mixed bag of uh, all different kinds of people out here for sure. There's a lot of people moving out here. I'm part of that problem, but uh, definitely is a is a cool place to be. I can imagine that. I've been there once. Okay, Sam, we've got a very special episode we're going to do this week. We've been doing the show now for a little over a year. That's right. I think we're actually, like, this is episode 53, and we've been cranking out episodes pretty regularly, actually more than regularly, with our B-sides twice a week. And let's just say we're proud of the work we've done. We've done a lot of work, good, a lot of good work over the last year. But we have some other things on our on our plate that we're looking forward to doing other projects. Yep. So we're going to just to let people know, we're going to be kind of putting a pin in the podcast. We enjoyed it. We we love our listeners. I'm not saying we're never going to do another show, but for the time being, it's, it's going on hiatus. There will be some bonus stuff, some lost episodes that will be going up here in the, in the following weeks and stuff. So, but do you want to speak to that? Do you want to speak to some of the projects we got coming on, coming up that we're working on? I absolutely do, Jay Mac. And, you know, um, before I do that, you know, I just want to reaffirm what you're saying. I mean, it has been a wild trip doing this show. We've got to talk to a lot of amazing guests. We've talked about things all over the gamut. Um, and it's just really been uh, some, some really great times. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to work on some of these other things that we're doing. And like you said, maybe it's not forever. But uh, one of the things that we've been doing together, even before the podcast, um, is making music. I mean, that's kind of the reason we even started doing the podcast in the first place is because we had that, you know, in our friendship for years. So we're going to be doing some more stuff with our band uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, right? Like if you're, uh, if you listen to the show, you've, I'm sure you've heard us talk about it. And if you don't know about it, please go check it out. The band is called Tomorrow Never Knows. We put out an EP in November, 2020, that's still out on all the streaming services. It's kind of like a psych rock uh, record. You play a lot of sitar on it, which I think is part of the sound. And we're going to be doing some more music uh, here in uh, 2022, put out another EP. I'm looking forward to it. We've actually kind of been working on this uh, clandestinely. Is that a word? Is that the right <laughs> word? I'll allow it. Secretly. And we've actually have a, like a track that we're going to play before we get into the, the, the I guess, the heart of the show, the this song's going to be like the bun. The, the meat of the show is going to be, uh, we're going to talk about the Beatles' get back. Just spoiler alert. But before we get to that, Sam, what, you want to play for them, Green Doorway? Like, this is definitely in the same vein as our other stuff. Kind of maybe slightly druggy. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we got this song mastered at Abbey Road Studios, just like the EP. Um, you know, a lot of what we do ties back to the Beatles. And I'm excited to talk about the uh, Get Back documentary. Um, but like you said, before we do that, we thought it would be cool to just share um, this song. It's not out anywhere. This is the only place where you can hear this song uh, until next year. And sometime early next year, we're working out the details on that. This will actually come out 
But here it is for the first time ever, uh, Green Doorway. I'm excited about this one, J Mac. You have a really, uh, you're like sing lead on this and you kill it. Thank you. So here it is for the first time anywhere, Green Doorway by Tomorrow Never Knows. I gotta tell you, dude, I forgot some of the high notes I hit in that song. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> stretching there. 
Dude, you killed it on that song. I can't wait to get that out there. And uh, I hope everybody goes and listens to it over and over and over again. And they, they just know it even better. I'm really happy with how that's had that song turned out. You know, just a little behind the scenes, that was truly a, a joint co-writing on that song. I, I came up with the, the chorus and then you ended up sending me different lyrics and changed the cording a little bit on the bridge. So it was, that was yeah. that's probably, probably the first song that we've co-written in what? long time that's actually a, a really good point i hadn't even thought about that like you know from yep. the from the ground up yeah absolutely yep. yeah yeah i'm yep. i'm really happy and I, I hope everybody enjoyed that um but j mac <laughs> we got to get into the beatles oh we got to sam this this if our teenage selves would have been in front of the tv from the minute this became available this is on of course disney plus our teenage selves, J-Mac, from the minute this became available, my 42-year-old self was glued to the TV screen. It was part of our Thanksgiving celebration, like, you know, watching this thing happen. We hung out with the Beatles. Absolutely. I think I think our teenage selves, I think our brains would have exploded if we had had oh, that yeah. much unfiltered Beatles. That's <laughs> true. In- and coming through our TV, let's just speak to the length of this. This is not a. This is not like a one sitting watch. This isn't even a two sitting watch. It no. took me about five or six sittings to get through it. It was. It's a total. So it's three episodes. It was a total of four hundred and sixty eight minutes of wow. Beatles. And what did they say? He went through. They went through something like seventy or eighty hours of video and like over a over like hundreds of hours of audio. Uh, something like that. I mean, it's just there's so much just the the uh, enormity of what they put together. It's just amazing. We should also mention that it was compiled and di- and produced and directed, I guess, by Peter Jackson. Yeah, that's right. Who, who, of course, did The Lord of the Rings. He's known for doing very long-winded projects. But I feel like just off the bat, once again, spoilers, I feel like some, I've, I did hear, hear some people complain about the length of time, but you, you can never give me too much Beatles. There's no, there's no such thing, especially Beatles that's behind the scenes, like where a lot of times they didn't even really know the mics were on, to, to my understanding. No, I mean, and that was kind of the idea is that they just wanted to uh, kind of be a fly on the wall and capture them, um, you know, see see behind the curtain of the Beatles making a record and then also performing that live, um, which they hadn't performed live for over three years at this point. So it was a really big deal. And I just want to make, make a point, too, about Peter Jackson directing this this amazing documentary is he's also really well known for that film that came out a couple years ago, um, They Shall Not Grow Old, uh, which involved like re uh, uh, resampling and cleaning up and, and using uh, AI technology to make this World War One footage uh, look incredible and amazing. And they used that same kind of approach and process on this Beatles film where they took this old footage that was shot on 16 millimeters. So it's not even, you know, it's like a, a quarter of the size of of a of, of a thirty two or half the size of the thirty two millimeter negative, um, and then you know upsample that and have this in full vivid color. I mean, it's just really unprecedented. And just to be able to sit there with the Beatles and see them create and just like be these artists together, I think was one of the the coolest things about it. Now, the original um, idea behind this the Beatles project was. They were gonna they were gonna record an album live in the studio, which, for those of you who don't really understand exactly how music is made, a lot most of the time it's done through overdubs, meaning they do one instrument or two instruments at a time and they just layer them on top of them. The Beatles, that's how they did Sgt. Pepper, Revolver, uh, Rubber Soul, 
help all those albums like that to to to, to some extent to mo- from mostly at least they're more uh ornate studio creations but they wanted to get back to roots rock and roll and so the idea was to go to this it was like almost like it almost looked like an aircraft hangar it was a big empty space Twickenham Studios where they would they would write and record live in front of a yeah. camera and then it would culminate to them playing the the new material live somewhere they, like they had really wild ideas it ended up not being as quite as wild actually i think what they did was cooler than some of the stuff they had planned because it was so rock and roll so do you want to speak to some some of the the vibe that you got immediately watching the these uh these lost reels of footage well, I mean, you you mentioned it right there off the bat. I mean, this was done at a film studio. It wasn't done at a recording studio, like a like a music recording studio. Um, this was the same studio um, that had been rented out for a film that Ringo Starr was going to uh, act in called The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. Um, actually, that's also the film from that soundtrack. The Badfinger song, Come and Get It, came was was, was on that soundtrack. Uh, which is a Paul McCartney song. He was producing them at the time. Um, but it was just this big, empty film studio, film set, right, where they would normally build a set inside. And they had just, you know, like the the background with some colored lights and things like that. But it was just really stripped down and bare. Um, and there was a lot of reports about it being kind of um, chilly and cold inside there, too. So, you know, it's not it wasn't maybe the most conducive for being creative. And you can see them struggling with it. That was the vibe that I got with, especially in the first episode, was them just trying to reconcile the fact that, like, you know, think about it. Like, everything's, like, echoing. The, the ceilings are so high, and the sound is, like, bouncing around the room. And they're, and, and they're trying to huddle together and just play music so they can hear each other. And I don't know. That would be weird, don't you think? I mean, that, I mean, that was the first impression I got. And that's the, the vibe that I always heard was, like, it, it was almost too big of a space for what they were doing. It yeah. seemed cold. It seemed drafty. It seemed like they 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 were they were actually crammed together, maybe closer than you normally would be. And and, and like for that big room, you think they would have like put a little, little more space between them. They were in the trenches trying to hammer it out. They were in the cage, so to speak, and you could really tell they were struggling. In fact, a lot of that first episode is them running through old songs, like old cover songs, and and uh, right. trying trying to like. I imagine, I imagine they, they were kind of thinking back to their Hamburg days. They were playing the old covers they used to play, trying to get in sure. the mood. And you, you can tell it's a real struggle. They're not really, they're not really gelling that much. Well, I, that's, and it's kind of like a picture of where they're kind of at, at, at as artists and as a band at this point, too, is like, you know, there are the legends, the the overarching legends, which I'm sure we'll get into more that I think were kind of you know, the perspective of this was enlarged by watching this documentary, but like the Beatles at this point, there was a lot of tension between them, you know, to put the place this, this time period that this happened in uh, January, uh, 1969 uh, was when they, when they met at, at uh, Twickenham to, to start these sessions, J-Mac, it was literally just in November, the previous year, 68, that they released the wide album. So it's like, they're riding high off that release, getting ready to do the next one. And then before the White Album, that uh, previous spring of '68, they were uh, in uh, India um, with the with the Maharishi. So it's like they've been doing so much at this point, and and losing their manager Brian Brian Epstein. I, I just think that they were just like trying to you know, find find an anchor, find some solace in each other, and 
which is probably why they went back to kind of their days in Hamburg playing, you know, multiple shows a night and staying up all night. Here's the thing, and we'll get into this more. Like the like the narrative is that it was a tension filled session. Right. I don't see that initially. It does build and yeah. by the end of the first episode, it does it does blow up. But initially they're they seem to be in pretty good spirits. They're sipping their tea, having little breaks, like they're trying to get their groove on. But then at a certain point it gets really awkward when Paul and this is this was on the old Let It Be film, but there's more than right. one example of this where he's kind of trying to tell George, you're not doing it right. And George was pretty passive, at least in the film. He didn't really appear to be that upset, except for his eyes. His eyes looked kind of PO, and I'm not going to lie. Well, I kind of, you know, what I got from that is that it seemed to me like George was maybe feeling pushed in a direction he didn't want to go. He made a lot of references to Clapton and the way that Clapton played. Um, and then there's that, you know, the the famous scene where he's arguing with Paul and he's like, tell me what you want me to play and I'll play it. You know, <laughs> I've been very passive aggressive and not and very thinly veiled. Um, and I think that, you know, it's possible. Maybe he might have been like questioning what he was doing um, at that at that stage. Probably they're, they're all questioning what they were doing. Um, there was a lot of things that were different. You know, Paul talks a little bit about feeling, you know, that it's been so long since they played live. Could they even do a live set? You know, and, and I, I think John is he has this new relationship with Yoko that's there and he's thinking about that. And uh, Ringo just seems like he's just checked out for most of that first episode. Don't you think he's just kind of like chilling in the back? Like, I don't even know. I'm just the drummer. <laughs> I think he doesn't want to step into what he sees as a potential argument. And, right. and here's the thing, which, which blew my mind. The Beatles were insecure about playing live. They didn't know if they could still do it, which was crazy because their last show was in 1966. I believe Candlestick Park was the last yep. show they ever played live. Right. So it had been three years. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like they hadn't been playing together for the last three years. They, they've been in the studio jamming. But th there you could see that like the, a little bit of trepidation, maybe a little fear on John's face. And you can sure. hear the other people's voices like, what if we what if we suck? What if we go out and we suck? Well, let's talk about Yoko for a second, because one of the other major narratives of this time period, the Beatles kind of splintering. Um, was there was this long time thing that Yoko was breaking up the band by being there at their sessions. And I just didn't get that sense. I didn't either. I, I expect her to be like putting her opinion in all the time. She really just sat there and, and wrote and draw and read. And I think at one point she starts painting really unobtrusive. I don't really, I don't really see her inject herself into the conversation at all, except when the Beatles are free form jamming. When yeah. one of them steps out and she takes, she picks up the microphone and my, my wife was like, Oh my God, it's why are they letting her sing? I'm like, cause she's Yoko. And that's, <laughs> she had her own vibe. That's the privilege of being the, the wife of, or the girlfriend of one of the Beatles. You get to, you get to maybe get up and sing maybe when you shouldn't, but let's, let's put Linda was there too. And neither one of them seemed to be really being obtruse. Well, Paul even made a joke about it, didn't he? You know, he was like, what did he say about that? Do you remember what the quote actually was? He said, 50 years from now, people be talking about the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. <laughs> so they were obviously making light of it. And you know what I'm saying? Here, Okay, here's what, here's what I think. I think John, um, now I know that John was, uh, was talking about leaving uh, the band and 
you know, he famously uh, made, uh, you know, a break from the band before it was public. But I kind of think that Yoko was there uh, for him too, but sitting so close, it was almost like having a, a trusted ally in the room. Like he didn't know what was going to happen. He was on a high from doing that, uh, that that Rolling Stones uh, rock and roll circus where they're just all out rocking and he gets up and you know go up and do the thing that he does the best and not knowing what it is and so in in a way it almost seemed like Yoko was there for him to kind of be a support system for him that maybe he didn't feel like he had with the other guys at this point which you can't blame him really you cannot blame a man and, and I think even Paul says Paul says he's he's in love with her why shouldn't she be here something along those lines which Paul. That was right. that was never in the narrative was that Yoko that Paul mm-hmm. kind of defended Yoko's presence it's like and he acknowledged that John was in love and let's face it they all are kind of looking at each other like do I really need these other people to do what I want to do that's kind of what I was starting to get toward uh toward the end of the first episode was they started yeah. feeling I could I could see they were kind of like I love music I love rock and roll and I even love these people but do I need these people to keep doing music and rock and roll I think they were certainly asking those questions. I mean, like, so, so all of them are getting close or already in their, their thirties by this point. Um, you know, a lot of the gloss had faded of them being like this boy band, like the first real big boy band to kind of just like sweep, sweep the world and just be like this real, you know, just iconic, like bigger than themselves really. And, uh, and trying to figure out what they were going to do, you know, with their creativity. I think George, he obviously, you know, you know, for him, he had this back catalog of songs um, that hadn't been considered for Beatles records that ended up being later, you know, only like a year or two after this point, putting out All Things Must Pass. So we had all this stuff there. In fact, they played All Things Must Pass in these sessions. Yep. Um, and I just think he was he was getting resentful. You know, I think it happens when you're young, for sure. Well, you want to speak to how episode one ends? Because it's it's almost funny now looking back, looking back. I mean, if you were in the room, it wouldn't have been funny, but it's just just the way that he gets up. I mean, I guess you could you could probably quote his what's he say at the end? You're talking about George. He kind of loses. He loses it. And yeah. basically he just walks out and quits. He's like, see, see you around the clubs. <laughs> I'll be leaving the band now and they're like what and he's like yeah I'm leaving the band see you at the clubs and puts down his guitar and walks out and and you can tell like they don't I don't know if they really believe him they don't really know what's happening they're they're so busy up in their own asses they're yeah. not really aware of it later on like they take a break and, and they come back and John's like I'm so pissed right now and then immediately after George leaving you can see the tension in the room yeah. dissipate and then the, the Beatles just go into this frenzy of like yeah. Just goofing off. Paul's climbing the rafters or whatever the hell he's doing. It's bizarre. He's, he's like he he jumps on like a a chain that's connected to a crane or yeah. some kind of hoist, and it's like lifting him up like two stories in the air, kind of a deal. And you just see him them losing their shit. Like it's yeah. like you know, it's like someone said, "Hey, let's break out the weed and just have some fun." You know that that's yep. you, you know you see him all glassy eyed, like that's what's happening. And to me, it's like you can see the sadness underneath the laughs too it's like it's starting to really hit them like okay this is not going to last forever and that was the thing that really struck me with paul you know because through the cracks like over the years you kind of hear stories of him like being really demanding and i think that he he was because he had a lot of vision but you also see him starting to really hurt like you start to see that depression kind of sitting in his eyes as he realizes that george is not coming back and uh it Oh, it was even so sad, you know, because like 
George had brought his brand new uh, eight track machine in for the sessions. And you see them like loading it out (laughs) like like two days later. And they're like, yeah, this is this is done. Like this is not happening. You know, like it's, you know, look, if you've been in a band before, you'll understand these type of dynamics. That was the thing overall. So much of this documentary sat with me was like it humanized the Beatles from their legend. Like it, it, it brought it back from that. Like these are just dudes trying to make music together. Do you know what I mean? No, it did because we've all been in situations where you, you, you left your equipment at somebody's house. You got to go pick it up or somebody's left their equipment at your house in the awkward <laughs> kind of, eh, how's it going? Uh, mumbly won't look each other in the eye kind of thing. The, what episode two picks up where Paul is, he, Paul's literally depressed. I think at one point he almost looked like he's, he's going to break down in tears. I'm, I, Maybe I mistook it, but he looked like he was really upset. Yeah, sure and did. They're they're, they're kind of talking through it, and doesn't John go, "Let's get Clapton"? Yeah, something like that. Or then they and they also oh. make a joke about like splitting up George's George's gear. <laughs> they ended up like having ha- having to have two meetings basically to get him to come back. Yeah, let's speak to this. This this is probably my one of my favorite parts of the whole thing is when that that hidden microphone where you can hear john and paul talking about how they've been treating george oh when they go to lunch and they have the have that mic yeah, hidden like in a yeah. in a vase or something like that on the table yeah that's that's really revealing and you can hear paul paul's like basically he doesn't really know what to do or how to fix it and john john says paul i've let you what did he say a lot of times i've let you choose arrangements and a lot of times you've been right but a lot of times you've been wrong and it's my fault for not saying and basically just acknowledging the fact that they kind of haven't been treating george as an equal and it's yeah it's it's really telling and i i cannot believe that it took 50 years for that conversation to come out i guess i can because it's kind i mean it's definitely a painful conversation to listen to i felt like maybe i shouldn't be listening like it was private it was it was like, you know, that that's a really good point because, you know, what had started to happen with these sessions is like once they were there with the cameras on them for hours out of the day, um, they started to get they got used to the cameras, but they also were aware that they were there. So they would start to curb some of their conversation with this being like a hidden microphone on them. I think you really heard like an unfiltered conversation was the realness between these these old friends, business partners and just kind of you know, talking about real shit. Like it was, it was pretty, pretty amazing to see that section. I watched an interview with Peter Jackson. I can't remember where it was, but he said Peter Jackson had technology made so they could filter out the guitars because what the Beatles would do when they wanted to have a conversation, but they didn't want the cameras and mics to get it. They right. play, they'd turn their amps up and play loud or talk away from the cameras. And so they, they had to figure, like, I guess the creators of this movie had to figure out a way to isolate the vocals. Not only that, it's a really good what point. They, what, 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 what the camera people would do, they would they would go to the camera, turn it on, and walk away, but they would put pieces of tape over the red light so the Beatles never knew when the camera was on, which ah. they were really sneaky, which explains how they got some of that shit. Because, dude, I mean, I guarantee you, like I watched that, that some kind of monster documentary with Metallica. Yeah. That's basically what you were getting was kind of unfiltered Beatles. But I will say this. I don't believe that the the sessions were as tense as the 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 hype was. There was a lot of fun moments in there, and you you really start to see it when they get when George comes back toward the end of 
episode two. They start sitting down, jamming, having fun. There's a lot of laughter. Maybe yeah. some of it's like tension relieving, but I don't see four people at each other's throat. I see four people trying to figure out how to stay friends and how, how this works from here. Um, yeah, and to, and to do you know the thing that always kind of united them, and that is to make music. Like if they can get right. to that place where they're not thinking and they're just creating and when they're having a really good jam session, then it kind of, you. I mean, you see all these worries kind of fade away, which makes a lot of sense. And I, I got to give a lot of credit uh, to to Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director. You know, one of the things that, you know, I, I've seen like Peter Jackson talking about this is it's really the Get Back documentary is a, is a documentary about a documentary being made, right? Because you see the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, come in and he's having these discussions with McCartney and like like all these other guys. Glenn Johns. We got to talk about Glenn Johns as well. Yeah. But, you know, him just like being relentless to try and get something on on film that they can use and have some kind of performance at the end. It's like a it's a reoccurring motif is like things are changing. I mean, it must have been an astronomical <laughs> weight on his shoulders to try and wrangle these guys into something usable. The majority of the takes never finish. They may, f- may fade off or they kind of start, one of them starts and they come in and they kind of jumble around it. There's not much, especially in those first two episodes that you could consider to be final takes. Yeah. Um, I think they, I think they managed to do a couple, but I remember, I remember towards the end of maybe the second one or the beginning of the third, where one of them says, I think George says to John, how many songs do we have ready? And John goes, none. It's like they don't they don't they don't have shit to show for all the they've been they've been monkeying around. They've been they've been trying to figure how how to get their groove on, so to speak. Yeah, it's so true. And I would say that um that's the rare that's why I love this so much. You get to see the Beatles kind of not doing all that well. You get to kind of see them kind of flubbing notes and goofing off. Remember when they did that song through their teeth? and they had their teeth clenched <laughs> that was cool it's just the stuff of like being being musicians being songwriters and just you know creating magic out of nothing one of my absolute favorite moments in the documentaries in the first episode where um paul comes in early and i i want to say that george and ringo are, are are there and he's like riffing on this idea on the bass and he's kind of got this groove going nun, 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 kind of a thing. And it's slowly like you see him, you see the light come on and he's like, oh, wait, he catches a piece of that jam. And then it starts to turn into get back. And you see over the course of this time, like John comes in, they start jamming it and you start to see the song formulate. Like it wasn't a complete song by the end of that episode, but you could see that the pieces were there. And it's crazy because that ends up, you know, being the single, their next single was that song. And it literally just came because he was goofing around on a bass and came with a cool idea and they turned it into a song right there on the spot. Well, what was, what was really cool is after, I think this was by episode three. I might, I could be wrong. It's all kind of runs together at a certain point. Mm-hmm. I think they finally get a finished version of it and they go, let's, let's listen to the playback. They go into the control room and you can see all their eyes light up. The magic is back. What oh, they've been searching for for weeks is you can you can see it. John actually starts getting excited. You can see George kind of getting into it. I think Ringo's yeah. nodding, bobbing his head, and that's what they were searching for. And that might have been the catalyst, which kind of got them off their duff, so to speak, to really finish it. I think it, it was even more so. 
when Billy Preston shows up. When they when they leave Twickenham and they say, okay, we, we, we've had enough of this. We're going to go back to our studio on uh, Savile Row. Uh, the right. Beatles had been building a studio or they had a guy named Magic Alex doing it for them. Yeah. I want to talk about Magic Alex a little bit. Yep. But before we talk about Magic Alex, I do want to talk about Glenn Johns. Um, because one of the things I didn't realize is that it just how much Glenn Johns was contributing to the content that 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 became uh, the Let It Be record. I mean, this guy is a legend. Do you know much about Glenn Johns, J Mac? I know he produced the Who. I think he produced some of the Stones records. He's you got he's it. He's produced I think the first two Eagles records. He was he worked with Led Zeppelin. Yeah, he's a mover and a shaker. This guy, I mean. Maybe he should be in, like mentioned in the same categories like a George Martin or a Rick Rubin. He's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, he he did a lot of uh, advancements in the way that music was recorded too. I mean, there's a whole miking technique for drums that's totally based on this Glenn Johns technique that they used on so many of these records. And I think one of the coolest points too is like him just being so cool, being one of the best dressed guys in the room, but then like working with Paul to do like that um that vamp walk down on the on the uh, let it be song when he's playing that's on the right piano. he's like no maybe do this walk down he's playing i'm like that's such a, a a huge part of the song that like ties these sections together with the solo and everything um and there he is like being an asset being doing what a producer is supposed to be doing it's just so cool to see him doing that yeah i mean he had a lot to do with those sessions and and you could see him he was trying to pull the best out of him and i think he did when when they finally got get back. You could see you could see all of them like almost like exhale, like we can still do it. But you're right. They moved to Savile Row, and then Billy Preston comes in. Now Savile Row is more like a traditional studio. It's got some really horrible green carpet. I want to it, talk about that studio. Do you know if it's still there? I don't think it's still there. No. Okay. So like the the building where this was was in like a like a posh district of of London. It was originally like a Georgian townhouse um, that had been switched to offices at some point. And they bought uh, this place or I think they bought it, whatever it was. They were working out of this building for for uh, Apple Records. Um, it was like their business location for all of their um, all their business management, um, their clothing line, the store that they had and you know all this different stuff. But where Glenn Johns was there helping the Beatles to make great music. Their friend Magic Alex was actually kind of doing the opposite. So there was this dude named Magic Alex um, who was like an audio engineer um, or so he said, and he had some really wild ideas. uh, But when they actually got over to their recording studio, what they don't really talk about much on the documentary was that he'd been there kind of like a mad scientist creating the studio. And it was pretty much completely unusable when they actually first went in there did you know that i mean i heard something about he had like some kind of like ridiculous amount of like tiny speakers lined up all along the walls like a hundred speakers it was like just stuff that like a mad scientist was make up that wasn't actually functional i but i think this was john's guy i think john and george maybe i know john was a big fan of his and then when john got there he's like oh my god we're screwed well you know when they started apple um, kind of the thing that the Beatles that they were all doing was going to look for people that they could develop and they would give artists and, and people breaks and um, and try to get them integrated in the things they were doing. And I, I think that's where magic came or where, where magic Alex came into this equation. But I wanted to to to, to kind of call over to Jeff Emmerich, the, the Beatles uh, or the recording engineer from from uh, EMI Studios that worked at Abbey Road that worked on so many Beatles records from 
as their lead engineer, starting with Revolver up up till the White Album when he quit. Um, he talked about coming back in to Apple Studios after they were doing this when they were getting ready to start on the Abbey Road sessions. Um, and is it cool if I just kind of read a little bit from his book here? No, go ahead. It's here, there, and everywhere, right? That's a great book. Yeah, it is. And I, I thought it was it was so interesting what he talks about this. So I'll just read a couple passages here. So here's what Jeff Emmerich says. He says, The Beatles were so miserable recording at the, the cold, drafty Twickenham that they decided to shift venues and complete the album at their own studio being built for them, supposedly by Magic Alex. Alex had purportedly been slaving away all that time on constructing a 72-track facility for them in the basement. That's crazy. Like, 16 tracks was cutting edge at this point, just so you know. And he, he goes on. Few artists had their own studio in those days. It was virtually unheard of. So then he, they get in here, and here's where Jeff is saying what he walked into. Okay. For a start, there were no wiring conduits between the control room and the studio, so thick and bulky mic cables had to be run under the floor and down the corridor. The speakers, 16 of them, embedded in the walls, sounded atrocious. The mixing console barely worked at all, and what signal it did pass was distorted. Little surprise, given that it was essentially just a sheet of plywood... (laughs) with 16 faders and oscilloscope stuck in the middle, which acted as an inefficient level meter. And it gets better. It gets better, dude. (laughs) He says this old building, right? He's like, uh, the basement had been used for storage. It was essentially just a corridor. The basement is where the studio was. Uh, So the basement had been used for storage. It was essentially just a corridor with several small rooms off of it. And Alex had done only minimal construction down there. In fact, he had stupidly plunked the recording area directly next to the building's heating plant so that you could hear loud thumps and wheezes coming from the next door whenever the boiler switched on. Obviously, the whole thing had been completely gut- had to be completely gutted out and rebuilt from scratch. And the icing on the cake, after a day of fruitless recording tests, George Martin ordered in uh, EMI's mobile console, which came accompanied by newly hired assistant engineer, Alan Parsons. Boom. Alan Parsons project. Alan Parsons project and engineering for Pink Floyd, like Dark Side of the Moon. Wow. So, I mean, the caliber of people involved in this project is crazy. But isn't that isn't that just nuts? Can you imagine walking into how frustrating that would be? You're spending all this money and it's like, it sounds terrible. You hear like the heater coming in. What the hell? That would be demoralizing. I'd be like, we left the film studio to come to this. But <laughs> But it didn't stop them, dude. They got Billy Preston in, and that's yeah. when the magic really took off. And that's really- I totally that's, agree. That's really, I guess you could say, the the earworm or the flare or the, the highlight that really holds or that really puts Let It Be up into- Without it, it's not, it's not the same record. Without Billy Preston on it, it's not the same. Completely I mean, agree, man. And it was just kind of an accident, too, that he even ended up there. Like, I didn't yep. know that. I always heard the story that George brought in Billy Preston to kind of be an ally for him. But from how it's shown in the documentary, he literally was just in town to do some some kind of TV event and drop by the studio to say hi, because they all used to play together in Hamburg. And they're like, you want to play? (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, talk about right place at the right time. And you can immediately see the mood. They weren't in a funk before, but they got they got downright silly and just laughing and having a great time. And that's when they knew it was magic. 
And that's when you can really see that there's something there. And then this con this this bridges in towards the the last part of the show, which is they're still trying to figure out where they're going to play this concert. They talked about like shipping people to like Africa and like the Coliseum. <laughs> Tripoli. George doesn't want to leave the country. Ringo's kind of pouting. So you can see the moment where somebody approaches Paul. It might have been Glenn Johns, where he approaches Paul. They're trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to how to wrap this up, and you can see the light go on, light bulb go off on in Paul's head, where they I think this is the end of episode two where he goes, he's presumably telling them, "Let's go up on the roof and jam the fuck out." Yeah, that's in legend. That's that's rock and roll legend, the rooftop session. And I did not know a how nervous the Beatles were before they went up. They were freaking scared, and then. How many how many songs they actually played? I I only thought they played three songs. They, there was a lot. I mean, they were up to like forty minutes or something. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, I was talking to my girlfriend earlier about this, and one of the points that that she made is that you know, with with Paul having you know slightly cold feet about playing live again, even though he wanted to, um, she kind of noted too that maybe you know it seemed like he was really getting to this idea of things like playing in this large like you know amphitheater in Tripoli or playing in some location where the cops could come and break it up it's almost like he was building in a back door so like if things didn't go well you know they could get out of it and it would still have like a good production of like if they sucked at playing you know you, you kind of see that going in between all of it but it, it is cool when they get there you know at the end of that episode they're all like standing on top of the rooftop looking out and there's Michael Lindsay Hogg and, uh, and and Mal Evans. We didn't even talk about Mal Evans yet. Yep. He was their their roadie and and former bodyguard, longtime friend. I didn't know that he was the one that played um, the uh, anvil on Maxwell Silver Hammer. I didn't know that fun. either. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Why? Well, I, I will say I got chills when they showed that when they showed the cameras being set up, and that's yeah. the end of episode two. Episode three, they go for it. It's freezing cold. It's like everybody's wearing coats. They're setting it's up January, games. and and at one point, I think. John actually says his hand is going numb. He can't play. <laughs> so it's cool to see the reaction from the street level. I mean, that was a little bit of that in the anthology, the Beatle anthology back in 1996, right. 97. But to see the crowd, and, and it's funny because at least the old people they showed loved the Beatles. And it was it was like these middle-aged stick-in-the-mud like yeah. people that were like, turn it off, it's too loud. But the old people were loving it. And I was like, that's so flipping cool. Well, you could see the hype machine, uh, you know, in in contrast to what the Let It Be film was, the hype machine that generated this idea that like people were pissed that they were playing. And there were people who were pissed, but most people just enjoyed it, Um, that the cops were like trying to break it up and take them off the roof. That's not what happened. They were very polite and asking for permission. You could tell that the cops were excited that the Beatles were up there recording. They had them like turn off the PA speakers and they're standing there watching them patiently while they get down. You know, it was very reserved. I think probably like the the craziest thing was like realizing that the camera that was across the street on top of the building for their wide shot. Um, it seemed like they were stealing that shot. Like the the business owner comes in. He's like, he didn't know that there was a camera up there. Kind of a deal, you know? Yeah. Remember earlier in the episode, they say something about, well, we'd have to, we'd have to like illegally put the camera up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it's funny because the, you could, the two cops, the two constables, you could tell they would rather be anywhere other than trying to knock, tell the Beatles to stop playing. Uh, yeah, of course. 
they don't want to tell the Beatles to stop. They're no. like, they just want, they just want to listen. And it's funny how the secretary kind of gives them the runaround at first. They're like, well, we oh, can't, the, do- the door's that. locked. We, we don't have the key. And so basically they, they get it, get another two or three songs in before they're actually able to get up there and open the lock. But you're right. I think the legend is what I guess Paul said. He wished that they would have drug him off, but that is a good story. It is. A, it is a good story, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny when they're done, the Beatles kind of, bashfully kind of climb back in their in their building and go back down like nothing yeah. happened that's got to be the most rock and roll concert ever played just a renegade the beatles the biggest rock band in the world goes up on top of a roof in downtown london and just yeah. starts playing that is pretty cool it's hard it's hard to duplicate that that scenario of like these international stars doing something like that you know, I'm sure there's been other things that have been as as audacious, but like that was certainly one of the the biggest things ever in in rock history. And it it was cool to see on the documentary to to see them go through the whole 40 45 minutes worth of takes and doing coverage and what well, they I think, you know, several other recordings from the rooftop actually made it on the record too, like Yep, I didn't I didn't realize that either. One after 909. One after 909, which was a song they wrote back in the in the Ham- or actually before the Hamburg days, I think. Yep. Um uh Dig a Pony was from the rooftop. Yep. So it was just really cool to see them, you know, just kind of kind of do their thing and and uh and I mean how cool for Billy Preston, you know, to be you know, he's not in a lot of the shots. I kind of have him high like hidden over to the side, but he's up there playing with the Beatles. They didn't have a lot of other rock artists play with them on on albums. It was kind of unprecedented. So you know, again, right place at the right time. And he added so much to it. You know, pretty pretty. pretty he amazing. filled out. He filled out the sound. Well, here's a little bit of Simpsons trivia. Uh, Homer is in a barbershop quartet, and when they break up, they go on the roof of the Quickie Mart, <laughs> and they're doing their last concert. And no joke, they got George Harrison. To do the voice, George, there's a limo drives, drives by. George Harrison, his cartoon looks out, looks out the car window, and he goes, "It's been done." Ah, that's pretty good. It's been. I done. love that. And yeah, so they actually got George Harrison on The Simpsons to kind of, to kind of like, like I guess kind of like lampoon it a little bit. It was, it was the perfect line for George. Eh, it's been done. I love that. I mean, it it really is such a great documentary. Um, I'm gonna have to go and watch it again. It's a, it's a it's a time commitment. Um, you know, I will say for the first couple hours, we're like, okay, is it just gonna be like this the whole time, flying the wall? And then you kind of realize what's happening. And by the time you know, like we said, it gets to this to the second half where they're back at their own studio, and then it culminates to that rooftop experience. It's quite a journey you've been on, and to realize it was really just a, a month in the life of the Beatles. And then to to realize, you know, they see the cracks are forming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, know like they know the end is coming. And and so what it was only like, you know, three weeks after those sessions that they started recording sessions for Abbey Road. Which is insane because they had the White Album came out in fall right. of 68. Presumably a month or two later, they start to let it be. They just finished that, and then, then about another month, less than a month goes by, and they actually start firing up the engines for more more sessions. These people lived and breathed music. It's all they did. It's insane. There's part of me that's jealous that they had that much time to play music. I wish I had that much time to play music. You're right. It kind of starts, I mean, I would say it starts off kind of slow because it's like there's a lot of flub takes, a lot of like what's going on. 
I actually saw in another interview with Peter Jackson where he said, he said, the reason I kind of made it that length was because I realized that, that this was my one shot to get this material out there because yeah. after that it was going to be shut up in a vault it might be another 50 years before anybody got it out again. So he really wanted to give you all the best moments. If you're not a Beatle fan, it's too long, but if you're not a Beatle fan, why are you watching it? You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, the I think that there, honestly, there's a lot there for people who aren't even Beatles fans because what it does is it really displays the how the creative process um, can be in a lot of ways a great equalizer between people of all levels of creativity and disciplines. Um, sometimes you really you have to go through the work to get to the gems, um, regardless of the talent. Like there, there's, there's so much you have to put into it. And this showed the Beatles working their asses off. And the reward at the end of performing these songs um, that were literally written just, you know, a a week or two, maybe three weeks before they did some of these songs, it it just really shows their level of commitment and uh, to the craft and, and really just a triumph of their, of their talent and skill. So I think there's something there for, for everybody, J-Man. I agree. Think we got an episode? I think so, man. We talked about the Beatles again. What a great way to take a break. Well, here's what I would like to remind our listeners. Like, there will be, uh, there's some lost episodes and there's some things that I'm going to pull out of the vault, some special things. So check our Facebook page and our, I guess our Instagram. We're going to go away for a while, but you're, we're going to come back with some music. And that'll, that, that's kind of the other half of what we do. Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing it. And I, I would just like to say thank you to all our listeners for this this year. Guests we've had were incredible. Mary Bear, the the people from the Record Exchange, Jenna and Jean. Just, I mean, so many people I can't even begin to list them. Joel Dot- Dodson. Andre Cataldo, Rachel Laycroft, uh, Ross Christopher. I mean, we're going to do a disservice if we try to remember off the top of our head. Just, we can't, just we can't caliber, do all. Like, Pretty much every episode we had a great guest on and we talked about something really interesting. And, you know, all these episodes are going to stay up there for you to go back through the catalog and, and check out. And and uh, I, I'm really happy with the work that we did this last year, Jay Mack. I, I think we really turned out some some really interesting stuff and I'm going to have fun going back and listen to it. I'm proud of it. And th- that's the great thing about podcasting. I've been podcasting for years. It kind of it's like a snapshot of your life or where what you were going through at the moment. And I can listen to stuff I did 10 years ago. And I'm like, God, look at how young and stupid I was. Uh, <laughs> but I think when I listen back to this, I'll be like, wow, we, we really, we really, we hit some home runs. I think there's, there's a lot of, a lot of good content in here. Yeah. And it, the, the shows will stay up because I'm proud of it. It's kind of like, I look at it like, like an album, like just an album yeah. of really long songs. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and you can't forget the, our special Halloween episode where we sat around the, the Oh, that was amazing. Campfire. Well, and, you know, just to remind our listeners to where they can find more of our music, which tomorrow never knows, like our main site where you can get, you know, keep 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 a pulse on it is on Facebook. Um, and it's uh, tomorrow never knows band. So Facebook dot com tomorrow never knows band. There's also an Instagram page tomorrow never knows band. And we'll be putting some more stuff out there. So keep a pulse on it and share it with your friends and, you know, reach out. Let us know how you're doing. So until we meet again, my name is Jay Mack for Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board. And this is Sam Wade. Saying until next time, stay Stay cosmic. cosmic.